I'm Todd McKay. This is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, and we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. And uh, we've got an interview for you today. Andrew Lawton is with us. He's a host of uh, his own podcast, very creatively named The Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, He works with the uh, True North uh, Center for Public Policy. He's provided commentary for just about everybody. National Post, Toronto Sun, all of the networks. I'm not going to list them all. It'll take all day. Uh, And uh, he's just in the middle of releasing a multi-episode documentary entitled Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about uh, gun policy here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation recently. So we want to chat with Andrew. So thanks for coming. And I wanted to ask you, first of all, before we get into all of the policy, policy affects people. And you've been speaking to a lot of people. Talk about one person who's who really jumps out in your mind that uh, that you had a chance to get to know through this project. That's actually a great question. And and thanks for having me, Todd. The one that stands out was an interview that was in episode two, actually, which just came out last week. And and it was with a husband and wife team who made a gun business from scratch. They built a gun business called Maccabee Defense. Their names are Wyatt and Shana Singer. And they did everything by the book. They, They wanted to learn it. They literally watched online tutorials on how to be machinists. They spent their life savings on building this business in their barn. They brought in experts from the U.S. to help them because they wanted to build this type of firearm that they felt was missing from the market. Literally everything right. They were specifically trying to make a non-restricted gun, engaged with the RCMP throughout the entire process. They sent fully completed prototypes, designs. The RCMP approved it and said, yes, non-restricted gun. This is great. And overnight, this was just a Canadian success story. They went from you know nothing to million-dollar orders in the span of just a few weeks and making just this one firearm. And then overnight, May 1st, 2020, the Liberals prohibit 1,500 variants of what they said were AR-15 variants. And this couple's business completely obliterated overnight with the stroke of a pen. They only made one gun and the government unilaterally decided it should be prohibited. And there's no recourse and still, the, to add insult to injury, we're looking at now, uh, what, 14 months after, they've never been officially notified that the government has prohibited their gun. They learned from their customers. They learned because they were doing their due diligence and being proactive and checking and saw it had put on the list. But talk about trying to do everything right. And then the government takes this bad faith approach. And, and you know, that's an extreme example. But the reason I, I set out to do this project is because there were a lot of people that were very similar and that they tried to do all the right things and there was no reward or reciprocity for that so that's really interesting i mean you've got people who are trying to do the right thing government says you're out of bounds the government doesn't actually talk to them i want to go back to meeting with gun owners though a little bit so there are millions of canadians who own guns but there are also many millions of canadians who don't own guns and don't have a lot of uh, experience with them i think part of what you're trying to do is bridge that gap a little bit. I was thinking about my own personal experience. I had a chance to go to a gun range. uh, This was a few years ago. And the guy next to me had like a 45 ACP, a great big handgun. Every time he pulled the trigger, my teeth would rattle. (laughs) And all of a sudden it struck me. It made me a little bit nervous. I was like, this guy's got a powerful firearm and I don't know him at all. Did you ever feel nervous meeting uh, with any of these folks? No, I I didn't. And and I mean, 
I should say that I was inviting people that I had learned of to be part of the documentary through contacts, through exposure to other media recommendations from people I knew. So anyone that I was meeting with was someone that I didn't necessarily know, but I had had a connection to in some way or, or knew enough about. But but more generally, I, I mean, I know from immersing myself in the statistical aspects of this debate that licensed gun owners are the safest group in Canada, safer on average than the general population is. So in my view, one of the safest places you can be is at a gun range with a law-abiding gun owner. And just to, to give an example, I mean, I did a bit of filming in Surrey, British Columbia, which is a, a lovely city, huge gang problem. I bet when I went to the gun range uh, in, I think it was Sunshine Coast we went to uh, that week, I was less at risk than I would have been just walking down the street in Surrey. Not that there's anything wrong with Surrey, but just looking at you know where, where crime originates. Crime does not come from law-abiding licensed gun owners. And, and once you know that, you can feel safe and, and comfortable. But I think to your point about bridging some of these divides, a lot of Canadians who have never been to a gun range, they've never been around a gun owner, they've never held a gun, they don't know that these things have an identity that is different from what you see in movies about guns or, or read in the Toronto Star about guns. Yeah, and I should be clear, that was actually my next thought when I thought about the gentleman with the Ace uh, 45 next to me almost certainly uh, has passed every record check, has no criminal record, probably a cop or a, or a former cop. Uh, and that was uh, comforting, I guess. But it is an important thing to, to kind of talk about. Okay, so let's talk about your documentary, though. That's what you're here for. Uh, Assaulted. What is this documentary about? Tell us about it. Well, like I said, with uh, my conversation with uh, Wyatt and Shana Singer, I, I was trying to tell the story of gun owners in a way that uh, people on the right who are generally more pro-gun than people on the left are historically haven't. And, and that's by talking about the human connection to firearms. It isn't just about, you know, a, a redneck that, you know, wants to, you know, shoot an AR-15 or something. It's about something far more than that. It's people who are hunters, people who live on ranches, people who live in cities and just as a hobby, like to go to a gun range, people who are military and police that like to, on their own time, make sure that they're better at shooting. So they have a, a private civilian license and, and private civilian guns. And the other aspect of this is all of the other parties that are involved in getting guns in the hands of law-abiding gun owners from retailers, distributors, manufacturers. Guns are big business in Canada, $8.5 billion a year, tens of thousands of jobs in the sport shooting and hunting sector in various forms, for right from the ranges to the manufacturing. And the reality is, like any other business that is subject to heavy regulation, those jobs are in, in a lot of ways at the mercy of the government. And in the gun control debates, their stories are, are never told. Obviously, you've been around this for a while. It's not like uh, you, you were, you know, looking at this issue for the first time. But anytime you're talking to people and interviewing a lot of people, something surprises you. What's something that you you learned through this process that uh, that surprised you? Hmm. That's a really good question. I mean, one one aspect of this is that I'm. I'm a bit of a contrarian in, in a lot of ways. So when I heard that the government uh, federally was going to ban an AR-15, that there were rumors of this going back years, I said, you know, I guess I better buy one before it gets outlawed. And I did. I, I bought an AR-15 just before the ban came in. And I didn't know how other people were because I actually expected that there would be a lot of people, especially retailers, that were just saying it's not worth it. 
that we're just saying, you know, I can't live with this uncertainty. I, I can't live with uh, just one example. When that order in council went in in May of 2020, you had some businesses that had $100,000 in inventory in their warehouses that still 14 months later, they have nothing to do with. They can't sell it. They can't return it. The so-called buyback program that the government has promised hasn't materialized. So you've got retailers who, like any other small business, have narrow margins that have $100,000 or more in inventory that's frozen. I thought that there'd be a lot more of an attitude of people being ready to, to throw in the towel. Mm -hmm. I was pleasantly surprised by how much resilience, you know, from the, the Maccabee defense case I talked about to the businesses that are in retail, all of them are saying, nope, we're going to, we're, we're not going to let them win. And I, I think that was a, a tremendous attitude. And it was something that was very delightful to see because, you know, guns, gun owners, uh, gun business owners, rather are not immune from what a lot of other small business owners have been uh, seeing and, and have been dealing with from government, especially throughout COVID-19. But there was a lot of resilience there. It's interesting. You, you set me up perfectly for the next question. The Prime Minister, he pointed out, you don't need an AR-15 to take down a deer. That's not necessary. Uh, but you got one because you're a contrarian. That's an interesting reason to buy anything. But a lot of other people, uh, these uh, some of these guns are important to them. So answer the prime minister's implicit question. Why would anyone want an AR-15? Well, I, I'm going to actually take a step back there because need and want are different things. And, and there are lots of things in society that are not needs that people have because they want, whether you want to talk about a fancy car or anything else. The, the want question, though, is, I think, actually a very good one, the way you worded it. And there are people that are competitive sport shooters, and there are some established competitions, international competitions, that require an AR-15. Uh, one of them is called three gun, which uses three guns, a shotgun, a pistol, and a rifle that's typically an AR-15 or something similar to an AR-15. And if you want to compete in these competitions, you've got to be able to use all three of the guns that the, that the competition requires. There are other cases where people in military who want to improve their aim privately are getting AR-15s because it's the most similar to what a, a soldier would use, but it's not a, a military rifle at all. And I don't want people to think that it is. And I spoke to in the documentary, I think this part's going to be in, in episode four, as an ex-Canadian Armed Forces member who represented the Canadian military in shooting competitions around the world. And he had said that he's convinced that there would be fewer soldiers surviving battle if soldiers do not have the right to uh, practice their shooting because of how little he says the military provides in the way of opportunity. And, and this is obviously conjecture, but it's conjecture from coming from someone who knows it very well. And, and that's just one of, of many examples. The reality is there is a range and it, it's the soldier that might want to just practice shooting on their own time. It's someone who wants to do competition. It's also someone who just enjoys it, who just sees it as a, a completely safe and legitimate hobby. 
I mean, I mentioned with my own acquisition of an AR-15 that I, I did it as a bit of a contrarian move. The timing was contrarian. The reason was because I wanted to start doing sport shooting. And I knew that there was a limited window in which I could do it with that particular type of firearm. But the reality is there are many, many reasons that go beyond what the liberal government said was the, the list of legitimate reasons to own these sorts of guns. And I would also add that those 1500 didn't just include the AR-15, it included hunting rifles, it included a lot of firearms that are used as part of daily life by farmers and ranchers. And it didn't include a lot of other guns who that essentially operate exactly the same way. It was a pretty, uh, pretty arbitrary list. I don't want to get too bogged down in technicalities, but I think there is one thing that it's, it's worth asking you to explain. When we're watching a movie and we see a, a military assault rifle, a fully automatic rifle, that's different than, than guns that are available to the general public here. Explain the difference a little bit. Yeah, those guns uh, that are fully automatic, machine guns as people would call them, or, or true assault rifles, have been banned for decades. Uh, they, they're not allowed to, to be owned. You can't have them. It's that simple. The thing that I think is interesting here is that people don't know if they haven't been around guns, what a lot of the terminology means. So you'll hear someone say, we're banning assault weapons. And you'll say, well, that, yeah, I don't want people to use those. Not realizing that assault weapon has a meaning that is different than what it means in a political context. And in a political context, assault rifle simply means a gun that the government has decided to ban. Uh, the, the actual assault rifles that will shoot on fully automatic are illegal and have been for years. What is typically targeted by this government is a firearm in the class of semi-automatic. And all semi-automatic means is that when you pull the trigger, it uh, chambers the next round. So it reloads itself as opposed to a bolt action where, you know, like in a, a hunting movie, you've got to pull back the bolt or a, uh, I mean, lever actions are, are not as common or a pump action. If you're looking at a, a shotgun, these sorts of things, a semi-automatic means that you can fire multiple times in a row without doing anything else, but you still have to pull the trigger each time. You're still firing one single shot and, and semi-automatic firearms have been around for years. People like them. They're easy, especially for people that you know have disabilities people that might not have a a lot of mobility that still want to engage in shooting or people that just like the simplicity of them but semi-automatic is what they're going after which does not mean it's like you know the uh, the old scarface uzi or anything like that all right now this every policy uh generally has a goal and that is in this case to make canadians safer that is the goal and usually even a poorly constructed policy achieves that goal at least a little bit, if only accidentally. In this case, are you seeing any evidence that, uh, that this would actually make Canadians safer? No, no, none whatsoever. And, and, you know, I will say there are two aspects of this. There's the order in council, and there was also Bill C-21, which was introduced in uh, February. And, and this is a bill that would allow the municipal governments to ban handguns. It would set the framework for the eventual buyback. It also went after replica firearms, which we can talk about that later on, but this bill was introduced in the wake of the, the horrific attack in Nova Scotia, of, in Portapique, Nova Scotia. And not a single one of the firearms used in that crime was legally acquired. Forget about the fact that they were being illegally used. None of them were legally acquired. So not a single one of those 
would have been dealt with at all by the bill that the government introduced in the wake of that attack. And, and I know that it sounds like such a cliche to say that, you know, law abiding gun owners are not the problem, but they aren't. They aren't. The vast majority of guns used in crime and gang violence in Surrey, in Toronto and other parts of Vancouver, it comes from firearms that are illegally smuggled across the border. And if you want to secure the border, I say, let's do that. And the government has talked about that. They've talked about uh, the, the criminal aspect and the border smuggling aspect, but they've done that in the same breath as trying to go after the legal firearms market in Canada, which simply is not the problem. And that's why a year into this order in council, there's been no change to gang violence taking place in cities in Canada. Okay, so let's start talking about the money. A little bit. I, I think the first important thing to do is figure out whether the policy will actually work. But then you also have to balance that against the price tag. The parliamentary budget officer said the gun ban and so-called buyback will cost up to three quarters of a billion dollars. But it was funny reading the uh, the analysis. You could almost see the parliamentary budget officer shrugging, like I don't know, like this. It might be three quarters of a billion. Might be somewhat less. Might be a lot more. Didn't even get into administrative costs. What's your sense, though? You've been looking at this a lot. Where do you see the uh, the cost of this program going? Well, I think anyone who saw the Liberal Long Gun Registry in action is going to be very, very cautious about trying to give a dollar value for, for any firearms program, because we've been down this road before. The reality is you've got uh, not just individual gun owners that have spent uh, hundreds and thousands of dollars on, on firearms. You've also got businesses that have spent, as I said, hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars on these firearms. If you want to buy back at the very least, at the very least, you have to pay retail value. But the reality is a lot of firearms have a value that is above retail for gun business owners who have had uh, guns that they've been sitting on in a warehouse unable to sell. I almost think that, you know, a storage fee should be included in the buyback plan because they've now had to lose money be by not being able to sell this and, and turn over the inventory, uh, not to mention all of these add-ons. So one of the, the hallmarks of AR-15s is that they're very customizable. People will buy different accessories and add-ons. Is the government going to compensate for that? We don't know what the government is going to pay for, how much they're going to pay, but it's very easy to see all of the ways in which these costs will rack up very quickly. And, and then the administration, the fact that not a single uh, piece of administration was included in the cost estimate, we know that even coming up with the circumstances of how to turn them in, are local police departments going to have to shoulder those costs or are they going to get money from the federal government? That's not incorporated in any of the estimates. So all I can do is speculate, but in just 30 seconds, I've rhymed off five or six things that will drive up the price even beyond the upper limit of what the government has predicted. And we've seen this experience in other places. In New Zealand, they tried a similar uh, program. The, uh, the administration cost came in at double what they had uh, projected. And uh, the effectiveness is uh, at best pretty murky. Okay, there's also an accountability element to this, and, and you refer to that a little bit. This policy was not implemented by legislation. It was implemented by an order in council, which is basically just a memo from cabinet. They sit around the table, they write it down, it becomes uh, regulations. Uh, the legislation was introduced, Bill C-21, as you mentioned, but uh, I checked it this morning. I, unless I'm really looking in the wrong spot, it hasn't passed. 
So they really haven't done uh, due diligence on this. Aside from the actual merits of the policy, what are your thoughts on the process uh, that's been used to implement this? Yeah, I mean, the process is is a bad one. And, and it's one that uh, overnight, without real, real warning, uh, prohibited people's lawfully owned firearms from being used, from being bequeathed, from being shot in any way. And, and I, I'm not as convinced that the method is the biggest problem because a lot of people in the gun owning community were saying that, well, you know, the fact that it was undemocratic and with the stroke of a pen was bad. I agree with that. But I also said, listen, the liberals have the power to do what they want. If they went did this through parliament, it would have passed anyway. So I, I don't want to make the undemocratic aspect of this the linchpin of the criticism. I think the issue is that it was bad policy. And this is from the government who criticized Stephen Harper's government relentlessly for making these decisions in the political realm and not letting the experts do it. Well, all of a sudden, it was Bill Blair and Justin Trudeau that were putting this list forward and telling law enforcement, you have to ban these firearms. So it was a complete reversal of what they said needed to be the, needed to be the priority with these sorts of discussions. Yeah, actually, that's and it's funny when we started getting into it, uh, we checked in with the National uh, uh, Police Federation. Uh, that's the union that represents the RCMP. And they said, this policy doesn't make sense. There's way better ways to spend the money to secure the border, deal with gangs, all of that kind of stuff. If the politicians weren't talking to, you know, the folks in the RCMP, who were they talking to? It's, uh, it's concerning. We need to have discussion of these policies and make sure that we bridge those gaps and get good policy ideas rather than firing through something that uh, perhaps makes headlines, but not a difference and costs taxpayers a lot. Okay, but as you know, uh, this isn't over. Uh, these debates continue. The game never ends completely. Where do you see this going from here? That's a, a tough question. I, I, I do think that there are a lot of ideological forces that want to restrict gun ownership until all you can have is, you know, your great great grandfather's musket. So I, I do think that there are certainly going to be people lobbying for a continued expansion of the list of prohibited firearms and thus a, a continued shrinking of the guns that you can lawfully own. And the fact that they included in the uh, order in council, and then two weeks later, by I, I didn't get into this, but two weeks later, they added to the list. And there was one business owner I spoke to who after the first order in council, he said, okay, what can I buy to kind of make up some of this lost revenue? He found a gun that wasn't banned, ordered tens of thousands of dollars of it, and then it was banned two weeks later. So uh, there, there's stuff happening like that where this list is still to this day being amended and added to. So I do think that's going to be the battleground. It's more and more models of firearms being added to this prohibited list. And, and by extension, you've got two things. You've got fewer things that people can legally buy. You've also got more opportunities for someone to accidentally be breaking the law because they didn't know they had to check this list every day. They didn't know that one of their guns was added to it and, and so on. And I, I'm very nervous about that potential for someone to face prosecution, not because they've broken a law, but because they just missed something. And it does get complicated. A lot of these things get complicated. A lot of these are very unique uh, guns and so on. There's a lot of ways for it to go sideways. Okay, let's go back to your documentary uh, quick here. What kind of reaction have you gotten so far? 
Really good. I, I mean, a lot of people have, I shouldn't say a lot of people, some people have dismissed it because they just think it's pro-gun propaganda. And there are certain people that never want to accept that there's anything about the other position that might be worth considering. But I've had people that have been very reasonable people who are not anti, who are not pro-gun. They're, they're quite anti-gun actually, but they've, they viewed this and they've messaged me and said, you know what? I, I hate guns. I don't think guns belong in Canada, but I, but this is unfair. And I think that's actually a tremendous success because even if you support the outcome, which I don't, but if you support the outcome that we need fewer guns in Canada that are owned lawfully because they may be part of the problem or something like that, surely you can accept that the way this is being implemented is not fair and would not be accepted in any other industry. Yeah. And at minimum, we've got to get to know each other a little bit. If you don't understand the other person's point of view, it's pretty hard to... Uh, hard to get together on it. And no matter how you look at gun safety, gun owners need to be a part of it and you need to have that conversation. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for taking the time to chat with us. In the show notes, we're gonna link to Andrew Lawton's documentary, Assaulted. It's gonna be in the show notes, check it out. Listen, even whether you agree, disagree, might as well learn more about it and talk to some of the people that are affected by this policy. It's a pretty good way to do it. We'll also include a link to uh, Andrew's uh, uh, podcast, The Andrew Lawton Show. Uh, you know, if you listen to that show, I think you're going to find stuff interesting. You're almost certainly going to hear some stuff you disagree with, but you'll probably hear some stuff that you agree with as well. And I'm going to go on a limb here and say Andrew does that on purpose. So check that out and uh, listen to his podcast. Here at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we are opposing Ottawa's gun ban and so-called buyback because it'll cost an awful lot of money, but it's not going to make Canada safer. That's what we've heard from experts. The more we look at it, the more concerned we get on that front. In fact, we're actually going to court uh, to help fight this. Uh, if you want to know more about that, check out taxpayer.com. Check out our petition. We'll have that in the show notes as well. And uh, to all of you, thank you so much for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, president of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening. And thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.